Please turn to Luke's Gospel, chapter 9. We're continuing our studies in Luke's Gospel. Luke, chapter 9. This morning we're going to consider the boy with a dumb and deaf spirit. The boy with a dumb and deaf spirit. Luke, chapter 9, verse 37 to 42. I'll read those verses now. Verse 37. And it came to pass that on the next day, when they were come down from the hill, much people met him. And behold, a man of the company cried out, saying, Master, I beseech thee, look upon my son, for he is mine only child. And lo, a spirit taketh him. And he suddenly crieth out, and it teareth him, that he foameth again, and bruising him, hardly departed from him. And I besought thy disciples to cast him out, and they could not. And Jesus answering said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you, and suffer you? Bring thy son hither. And as he was yet a-coming, the devil threw him down and tear him. And Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the child and delivered him again to his father. In his letter to the Philippians, the Apostle Paul spoke about the Son of God exchanging the glories of heaven, the Son of God, who came down from heaven and he exchanged the glories of heaven for the sin and suffering of this wicked world. And this is what the Apostle Paul said. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Can there be any greater contrast than that? The king of glory stepping down from his heavenly throne into this dark world of sin to minister to sinful men sinful women, and ultimately to lay down his life as a sacrifice for their sins. I can't think of any greater contrast than that. We should be seeing something of that contrast in today's passage with the Lord Jesus Christ coming down from a mountain or a hill, as it's referred to in today's passage, coming down from a hill where his face had shone like the sun and where his clothes had been as white as light when he was at the top of that hill. Yet, when he came down, he was met by people who opposed him and also a man who pleaded with him to cure his son who had an evil spirit. You've got some of that contrast there, haven't you? From having a face shining like the sun and his clothes white as light as his divine glory is bursting out of him on top of that mountain 
to coming down and dealing with a crowd who opposed him and a boy who was possessed by a demon. The man had come along whilst the Lord was on a, on that mountain with his apostles, Peter, John and James. In the Lord's absence, the man looked to the other nine apostles to cast out the evil spirit, the deaf and dumb spirit. The spirit wasn't deaf and dumb. He, that's, that's the effect he had on the, the boy that he possessed. However, the other nine apostles were unable to, to do anything. They were unable to cast out the spirit. What we're going to consider this morning is also recorded with some extra details in Matthew's Gospel and in Mark's Gospel. Therefore, those two accounts will also be referred to as we look at Luke. When the man came to Jesus pleading on behalf of his son, he said, Master, I beseech thee, look upon my son, for he is mine only child, And lo, a spirit taketh him, and he suddenly crieth out, and it teareth him that he foameth again, and bruising him, hardly departeth from him. And I besought thy disciples to cast him out, and they could not. And Jesus answering said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? And suffer you. Bring thy son hither. You see that in verse 41. Those words of Jesus. Can you sense something of the exasperation. And the frustration. In those words. Of Jesus in verse 41. O faithless and perverse generation. How long shall I be with you. And suffer you. Jesus was addressing people in the crowd who were unbelieving, people who had twisted the truth. As to who those people were, the people whom Jesus called faithless and perverse, well, for a start off, the scribes were in that crowd. We're told in Mark chapter 9 and verse 14 that when he came to his disciples, he saw a great multitude about them and the scribes questioning with them. The scribes were experts in the law. That's what they did. They studied the law and they taught the law, the law of God. For all that, they had no faith in Jesus Jesus, who is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Whilst the scribes would no doubt have taught people about the importance of keeping God's law, they certainly would not have taught them about the necessity of trusting in the Lord Jesus. Jesus, who was right there amongst them. Jesus, who was continuously and sinlessly keeping God's law. Jesus, who would very soon pay the penalty for sin in full with his own precious blood for all the sins of all the people who would ever trust in him throughout all generations, from the beginning of time till the end of time when he comes again in judgment. 
Also, it's a clear, it's clear in other passages of scripture that the scribes were most certainly part of that faithless and perverse generation that Jesus referred to. For example, we've seen it already uh, in, in previous weeks in chapter 5. Jesus said to a paralyzed man who had been lowered on a mat through a, uh, the, the roof of a house, lowered to the feet of Jesus, no less. And Jesus said to him, thy sons be forgiven thee, thy sins be forgiven thee. At that point, the scribes who were in that house, they would have done well to fall prostrate before the Lord Jesus Christ and worship him had there been room in that house, uh, that crowded house for them to fall prostrate. But all they could do, along with their partners in crime, the Pharisees, was say within themselves, so they didn't speak loudly, they just said within their hearts, Who is this which speaketh blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Clearly, in those words, they were denying that Jesus is God manifest in the flesh. Not only did the scribes not believe that Jesus is the Son of God, in Mark chapter 3, they dared to accuse the sinless Saviour of casting out an evil spirit by the power of Beelzebub, by the power of the devil. Can you get your head round this? First of all, they're, they're, they're denying that Jesus is God manifest in the flesh. Not only that, they're accusing him of being demon-possessed or an agent for the devil. In summary, the way to be accepted by God that the, Pharise- uh, that the, the scribes believed and that they taught everyone else was one of strict obedience to the law and all the layers of man-made tradition that had been added to the law. However, their way is the way of destruction. Why is that? Because all have sinned. They were teaching that you must obey the law, you must obey all these traditions that we've added onto it. It can't be done because we're all sinners. All have broken God's laws and the wages of sin is death. But this is the good news. The gift of God is everlasting life through faith in the perfect obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ in his life and in his death at the cross. Also, those scribes, they showed just how perverse they were by by accusing Jesus of being an agent of the devil. Unbelief was even ascribed by Jesus to his apostles, who were there. They were there with him in that crowd. That becomes clear in Matthew chapter 17, verses 19 and 20, where it is written, Then came the disciples to Jesus apart and said, Why could not we cast him out? This is after Jesus cast out the deaf and dumb spirit. They they saw Jesus apart from everyone else and asked him, Why could we not cast him out? And Jesus said unto them, Because of your unbelief. 
For verily I say unto you, if ye have faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. We've just seen the unbelief of the scribes. They denied the divinity of Jesus. They accused him of casting out evil spirits by the power of the devil. The unbelief of the apostles, uh, it was most certainly not the same kind of unbelief as that of these scribes. For example, the spokesman of the apostles, who was their spokesman? Invariably, it was the apostle Peter, wasn't it? He was the one who always spoke up for the rest of them. And he had already made that amazing confession of faith in the divinity of Jesus when he said to him, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Wonderful confession of faith there. So the unbelief of the apostles, it certainly wasn't the same as the unbelief of the scribes. And that's an interesting thought, that not all unbelief is the same. Not all faith is the same. And when someone, as we shall see very soon, when someone has faith to believe that Jesus can heal them from whatever, that don't automatically assume that they believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that they've got a saving faith. It, it doesn't work that way. Different types of faith. But the, the, the apostles, they did have unbelief because, as Jesus said, because of your unbelief, when they asked him, why could we not cast him out? They were unbelieving when it came to them, casting out an evil spirit. And that is really astonishing when you think that back in Luke chapter 9, verse 1, can you remember that? What did Jesus do? He sent them out on their first mission. And he gave them power to um, do miraculous works, to preach the, the, the gospel of the kingdom, and to cast out evil spirits. All 12 of them. Presumably, he gave them power to cast out evil spirits. That had already happened and there they were being rebuked by the Lord Jesus Christ because they didn't have, because of their unbelief. That is why they couldn't cast out the deaf and dumb spirit. Jesus had said to his disciples in in chapter 9 verse 1, uh, he'd given them power and authority over all devils. By way of application, I've got a bit of an application for us now. It just goes to show how deceptive the heart is. It clearly was the case with those apostles. Their, their own hearts deceived them. So much so that they, they didn't have faith to cast out an evil spirit. You, dear Christian, can very easily forget or lose sight of what you are able to do. Or more to the point, what the Holy Spirit is able to do in you and to do with you. That can very easily happen when your focus is on yourself and not on the Lord Jesus Christ. Take, for example, the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16, where he said, Let your light so shine 
before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. What did Jesus mean there? See your good works, glorify your Father is in heaven. I can tell you, I know a lot of pagans, a lot of unregenerate people who do much better things than I do. They're doing it for the wrong reasons. I don't know why they're doing it, whether they're earning merit points with God. But they, but to the naked eye, there are many people in this world that do better things than I. But Jesus specifically said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works, whatever those good works are, and glorify your Father in heaven. How do you connect the two there? Seeing your good works, glorifying your Father in heaven. Because when some pagan or unregenerate Christ-hating person does good works, or what is perceived to be good works, that doesn't necessarily glorify God in heaven, does it? No reason why it ought to. You don't get people praising God in heaven when someone helps an old lady across the road. So what's going on here? Many Christians never seem to get involved in evangelism, despite it being something that Jesus has told us to do. Instead of drawing on his enabling grace and looking to him to give them a holy boldness, they hide their light under a bushel. In Matthew chapter 17 and verse 20, Jesus said to his unbelieving apostles, If ye have faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall move, and nothing shall be impossible for you. As for you, dear Christian, you can do all things through Christ Jesus, which strengtheneth you. Unless, of course, you're looking at your own timid, feeble and frail self and you're not looking to the mighty God, the Lord Jesus Christ, to enable you to do that which brings glory to his highly exalted name. One obvious way of doing that is to tell people about him. To to be involved in the work of proclaiming the gospel and furthering his kingdom. Last of all, we can consider the faith of the father of the demon-possessed man who rightly sought the Lord Jesus Christ, but then suffered a setback when Jesus was not there and the the disciples were unable to do anything for his son. What about him? Did he have faith or did he not have faith? He'd gone there looking for Jesus to cast out the deaf and dumb spirit from his son. Jesus wasn't there. So he asked the disciples. Disciples were full of unbelief. Can't do it. Did he have faith or didn't he? This is where we get to varying degrees of faith. Clearly there was something going on with him. He did have something But in Mark chapter 9, verse 22, we're told that he said, If thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us, us being him and his son. If 
thou canst do anything, have compassion on us. By saying to Jesus, if, it would seem that he had forgotten or maybe he had no knowledge of the time that Jesus cast out a vast number of evil spirits from a man in the country of the Gadarenes. Clearly, whatever faith that man possessed did not embrace a belief that Jesus is the Son of God. If he did, he wouldn't have been saying if. If thou canst do anything. He wouldn't have entered his mind to say if. If he had that true, if he had a belief that he was addressing the Son of the living God. He didn't have a saving faith. You can't have a saving faith if you do not believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. At best, in his mind, Jesus, whom he addressed as Master, which means teacher, was a, he, he, at best he believed that Jesus was a prophet who might be able to do something for his son. It was worth a shot, wasn't it? Uh, going there and seeing if Jesus could do something for his son. After the man said if to Jesus, Jesus also said if. When in Mark's Gospel, chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus said to the man, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. Then, crying out with tears, the man said to Jesus, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. I love that. That, 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 I think we've all got a lot of, well, no think about it. Even people who have been Christians for years, they've got a belief, they've got a faith. Even so, help me with my unbelief. And that man was saying that. And as I've already said, I can't imagine he had a, he didn't have a saving faith in Jesus. But what wonderful words that proceeded from him. Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. Therefore, even though he did not believe that Jesus is God, for whom all things are possible, he did nevertheless possess faith, a certain type of faith, albeit a tiny bit of a certain type of faith. As Spurgeon said, while men have no faith, they are unconscious of their unbelief. But as soon as they get a little faith, then they begin to be conscious of the greatness of their unbelief. There was something going on there. He had some kind of faith in Jesus. Not a lot, but he had something. That's a start, isn't it? That is better than nothing. It's not enough, but it's better than nothing. By way of application, do you have a little faith? Perhaps enough faith to believe that Jesus really did do miraculous works. Uh, We've been looking at it over many weeks now in Luke's Gospel. We read these things, we study it. Do you believe that someone called Jesus did miraculous works? That he cast out evil spirits? That he fed the multitude? with five loaves of bread and two small fishes. Do you believe those things? Those miraculous works of Jesus are recorded in order that you might believe that he is the Christ. It doesn't stop at believing that he did miraculous works. They're they're recorded that you might believe that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing you might have life through faith in him. 
Believe that Jesus, the Son of the living God, paid the penalty for your sins at the cross. And that he was raised from the dead for your justification. In other words, that you don't have a dead saviour. That you have a saviour who is alive. He's, He's returned to heavenly glory. Highly exalted. That he's coming again in judgment. And that he's coming to take you to be with him. So you believe that he is the son of God who paid the penalty for your sins and that you have a hope that reaches all the way up to heaven because if you haven't got Christ, whatever hopes you have, they can vanish. And I know there's a few people in here who they pin all their hopes in football team and what a disappointment that is when you play that, when you do that. Miserable. To have Jesus is to have a certain hope that can never be extinguished. A hope that goes up to heaven. As Jesus said, if thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I tell you what is possible and what is certain. You will have all your sins forgiven. You will have everlasting life. You will have a hope that reaches up to heaven where your great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, is. We haven't even looked at the healing of the demon-possessed child. And we'll do that now. Let's have a look at verse 42. And as he was yet a-coming, the devil threw him down and tear him. And Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the child and delivered him again to his father. It's worth looking at Mark's account of the boy's deliverance from demon possession. According to Mark chapter 9, verse 25 and 26, when Jesus saw that the people come uh, came running together, he rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him and enter no more into him. And the spirit cried, and rent him sore, and came out of him, and he was as one dead, insomuch that many said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, and lifted him up, and he arose. Therefore, we see when you look at Mark's account of what happened, even after Jesus had commanded the evil spirit to come out of the boy, it still attacked him one last time, There was that final attack and it was so severe that the boy was left as one dead. However, Jesus was there to make sure that the boy did not die and he delivered him to his father. That same demonic determination to inflict pain and suffering and even to kill can also be seen when Jesus was in a synagogue. There was a man with an unclean spirit And he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Hold thy peace and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had torn him and cried with a loud voice, he came out of him. It's the same pattern there, isn't it? The evil spirit came out of the man in the synagogue 
at the command of Jesus, but not before tearing him one last time. And when it comes to salvation from sin, we should not underestimate the devil's determination to hold on and ultimately to destroy all of his captives, all who do not belong to Jesus. The devil does not want to let them go, does not want to let you go. All of you who have not shown repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for your sins, for the forgiveness of your sins, you are a captive of Satan and he does not want to let you go. But the good news is that as can be seen with the Lord's deliverance of the boy with a deaf and dumb spirit, Jesus is stronger than the devil. And that was seen to be the case at the most unlikely of places. Where do you think that was? Where was Jesus seen to be stronger, infinitely stronger than the devil? On that centre cross. Where Jesus, through his own death, dealt a death blow to him that had the power of death. That is the devil. Even um, in in the early chapters of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, there was that first gospel promise of the seed of the woman, uh, the the seed of the serpent bruising the the head of the seed of the woman and the seed of the woman, um, I'll get this right in a minute, the seed of the serpent bruising the heel of the seed of the woman and the seed of the woman bruising the head of the seed of the serpent. In other words, the devil dealing some, inflicting some kind of um, damage, shall we say, at the cross, but Jesus dealing a death blow to the devil at the cross. Even though the devil is the prince of this dark world of sin, all of you who have received Jesus as your saviour from sin, to you has he given the power and the great privilege to become sons and daughters of the Most High God. He has defeated sin, Satan and death. Death will finally be destroyed when it is cast into the lake of fire at the end of time. Jesus has triumphed over those things at the cross. And you who trust in him, you who have been baptised in Christ, you who have put in Christ, you have been transferred out of the devil's dark domain, you have been transferred, put into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a present reality. Even though the devil walks around like a roaring lion in this world seeking whom he may devour, you, dear Christian, are safe and secure now and forevermore in the hand of the mighty God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and also in the hand of his Father, safe and double safe now and forever. And you claim for yourself the words of the hymn writer who said, 
Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. Amen.